And we're launching today officially into the book of Genesis where we're going to be studying these first three chapters. And we're going to spend a while here. I don't know how long, but uh, I want to spend some time here. This is something that's been on my heart for quite some time. Many of you know that I have the privilege of serving together with others in our district on the uh, licensing and ordaining committee of our district where we interview uh, young men and women who are uh, wanting to give their lives to ministry uh, vocationally in one way or another. And uh, I've kind of begun to, one of my favorite questions is always to ask them, what do you believe about the Bible? I want to hear people tell me that they believe the Bible is the Word of God, that they believe that it is inspired by God, that it is trustworthy and true. And I've come to realize that in our day that we live in right now, one of the ways to test that is to ask them what they believe about these three chapters of Genesis. And it kind of goes to the heart of the issue. And and sometime a year or so ago, I wrote a, a paper, some of you saw that, about all the things that can be discovered in these three chapters and why it's so important that we understand and appreciate the value of these chapters because they really forecast for us the rest of the Bible. There's another reason for looking at these chapters because we currently live in a period of time when when truth as an absolute is being strongly contested in the culture, where experience rules and relativism is the mantra of the day. People say things like, I have to find my own truth. Or what's true for you may not be true for me. Or we have to discover truth for ourselves because it's going to be different depending on our circumstances. What kind of truth is that? But we live in a time when truth is being questioned in any kind of absolute terms. Relativism reigns. And furthermore, we are living in a time when the the veracity, the truthfulness, the accuracy of these chapters in the Bible are being strongly questioned, even by Bible-believing Christians. I have a book that I have been reading as part of my overall preparation for this series. It's a very interesting book, published just a couple of years ago. It's written by three teams of people that have three different viewpoints on the meaning of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. One team believes that uh, the days of Genesis are long periods of time. One team believes that the days of Genesis are literal 24-hour days. And one team believes that the whole writing of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a poem. And it has no literal truth. It's, it's simply a poetic expression of kind of a creationism. And, and the way the book is structured is each team presents their reasons for their viewpoint. The other two teams have a chance to critique them. And then the original team has a chance to come back and answer the critique. So the whole book takes each position and goes through it that way. But here's the interesting part. In the preface of the book, the author states that every contributor is a Bible-believing, evangelical Christian who believes that the Word of God is inerrant. Every one of them. And yet they have three different viewpoints on what inerrant means in these chapters. Literal 24-hour days, long periods of time... (laughs) not meant to be taken literally at all. It's a poem that's meant to be taken figuratively. So we live in a time when even those who are furthest to the right, if I can use that political analogy, even those who are furthest to the right in the church are questioning with some skepticism the literal truth of these chapters. 
And it is my conviction that these are questions, the question about truth, is it relative or is it absolute? And the question about the interpretation of Genesis 1 to 3, these are questions that as believers, uh, we should be willing to die on these hills. You know, in, 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 our, in, in battle, in war, certain hills are considered strategic. Every one of you has embedded in your mind that picture on Iwo Jima of the Marines pushing up the flag. And you can all see, all I have to do is mention that, you can all see that because Iwo Jima was a strategic island in the battle for the Pacific. It had to be captured if the Japanese were going to be defeated. It was a hill to die for. And it is my conviction that in Genesis 1 to 3, the absolute nature of truth and the truth of creation and the origin of life and humanity, the, the truthfulness of these chapters are like Iwo Jima. They are hills, islands, strategic points that we should be willing to invest our all in because if we lose this battle... It undermines all the rest of the Scripture and all the message of the Gospel. I'm going to get into those specifics in detail later on in the series, but it's that kind of a a crucial matter in my mind. And I want to answer the question this morning, why should we spend time studying a 35 hundred-year-old story about how the world was made. I mean, we're in the 21st century. Modern science has been advancing at an amazing clip for the last couple hundred years, and just in the last few decades, we have made amazing strides. Look at all the things that have happened in your lifetime. Any one of you, pick your lifetime. Look at all the amazing things that have happened. Look at the, the, the phenomenal marvels. I had some testing done a couple of weeks ago in two different hospitals and by, by different doctors in, in, in different uh, scenarios. Did you know that all of them can log online to the patient database and look at all my records from wherever they are? Isn't that amazing? You know, years ago you had to go there and ask medical records to pull out a chart And they had to physically look at it, but now the doctor anywhere in the world can get on the internet and see his patient's CAT scan and make a decision. That's phenomenal. Think of all the things that have happened. So why should we be interested in the face of all of these scientific advancements? Why should we be interested in a story about how the world was made that's 3,500 years old and out of date? At least by common thinking. And I want to give you this morning three reasons why it's worth investing our time in attempting to understand the meaning and the message of this story. First of all, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 are unique in their content. They're unique in their content. There is information here that human beings have no way of knowing unless there is a God who tells them about it. Just like the book of Revelation contains prophecies out into the future that we have no way of of verifying other than the trustworthiness of our God, we ourselves cannot predict the future with that kind of accuracy. So Genesis 1-3 to contain truths that no human being has access to. I mean, think about it. Unless you were there and watched it happen, you could not have recorded it. No human being was there. We were the last of the creative uh, ingenuity of God on the, uh, on the last part of the sixth day. We were the last thing made. All of this happened before a human being showed up on the planet, according to Genesis. We have no access to this information unless God gives it to us. Now, 
that automatically should pique our interest. Because God does not waste words. And if He has bothered to tell us about our origins, about the beginning, about the beginning of life, and about the beginning of the universe and of the world, if God has told us about these things, He must think it's important. It must be meaningful to Him. And furthermore, He must want us to know it. In fact, I think He does. It was Augustine who said, There is a God-shaped void in the heart of every person, and we have no rest until we find our rest in Him. In other words, God has hardwired every one of us to lack peace until we find our peace in God. We were designed for relationship with Him. And when we don't have that relationship, there's something missing from our lives. Some people have even gone so far as to say that that really explains uh, prostitution and drug addiction and all kinds of evil in, in our societies and around the world because human beings are searching for the missing piece in one form or another. They're looking for answers. And even in more legitimate ways, sometimes we invest far more than is warranted in things and people and, and, and positions that are not going to satisfy. Because only God can fill that void. And, and it's God in that same way that has put within us a desire to understand who we are and from whence we've come. How did we get here? What is life all about? These questions that plague humanity are questions that God has hardwired in our heart. I have never met now, you may be here this morning, you may be an exception, and I don't even know it. But I have never met an adopted person who was not curious as to what his or her biological parents were like. Every person I have ever talked to in 35 years of ministry that has told me they were adopted has acknowledged that they have some curiosity about what their biological parents were like does not mean that they don't love the family that raised them, doesn't mean that they don't identify that as their family, but it means that they have a longing to understand particularly why am I <laughs> the way I am? Why do I do the things I do? Why do I act the way I act? What's going on inside of me? Where did my interest come from? And I speak on that subject as an adopted person. And I was raised in a good family, a family that I identify today as my family. And yet there was in me always the nagging question, what contributed to my genetic makeup? Why, why am I the way I am? <laughs> you know, where did that come from? And um, I'll never forget. Uh, walking into our firstborn son's room when he was just a baby, lying in the crib, sleeping, curled up, sleeping in a particular way that I instantly recognized as being the way I sleep. And I looked at him laying in the crib and I thought, my goodness, this kid has got that gene. <laughs> you know, he's hardwired to sleep that way and that's the way I sleep. And, and it was just uncanny. I mean, it was that close. It wasn't similar. It was just so close that I thought, that, that's unreal. It kind of renewed within me an interest of, okay, so what was my biological mother like or father like? And on a grander scale, humanity as a whole has the lingering question. Where did I come from? Why am I the way I am? Why am I like this? Why do I act like this? What's right with me? Where did I get my gifts and aptitudes? What's wrong with me? 
what's going on in my life. And God has wired us to ask those questions because when we start looking for the answers, they ultimately open our hearts potentially to come back to God. And He has taken the time to answer those questions for us in Genesis 1-3. to <clears throat> Thirdly, the message of Genesis 1-3 to is a necessary backdrop to all the rest of the Bible and to the gospel message itself. In fact, I don't think it's hyperbole for me to say that the meaning of life itself can be deduced from these 80 verses. That all the message of the Scripture ties into the foundation that is laid in these three chapters, including the very essence of the meaning of life. So, do you want to know what life is all about? Do you want to get underneath to the, to the bedrock, to the real meaning of our existence? We're going to discover that as we study these three chapters together. Another reason to study the three chapters of Genesis is that they are pregnant with meaning. Now, I'm using that in the sense that there are seeds in these chapters. Germs, kernels, the, the, the little embryonic form of teaching and truths that begin to expand and explode throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture that are anchored here in these three chapters. The seeds of the following teaching can be seen here. Before I get to that, let me tell you that, that paper that I wrote some years ago, or, or some months ago, a year or so ago, was read by one of my colleagues on the licensing committee. And here is a man whom I believe has two master's degrees, and of course an undergraduate education degree as well. And when he read that, his comment was, I never had any idea that all of this was in those early chapters of Genesis. I believe that every important doctrine of the Bible literally starts here. And that as we look at them and study them, we're going to find that, that the, the, the beginning of every teaching that has significance for our lives has its root and its seedling in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. We are going to find out about the person and nature of God. And you're, you're going to be surprised at all the things that these chapters contain about the character, the nature, and the person of God. I'm going to spend the rest of the month of January exploring that. I may spend some of February. I don't know. It kind of just depends on how that rolls out. I told you last week I'd made a New Year's resolution to only preach 45-minute sermons. <clears throat> last week I blew it. First Sunday of the year, I broke my New Year's resolution. Now we've hung the flags up and I can't see the clock. Well, maybe I should take my watch off and look at it. I don't know. But anyway... Uh, I'm going to try to break it down. So if I have to break it down too much, it may take us February. But we're going to look at all the things these chapters teach us about the person and nature of God. And then we're going to move on to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to look at the foreshadowing of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All in these chapters. <clears throat> and when we get done with that, we're going to find that they describe for us the, the nature of human beings. Our personality, our spirituality. Our sexuality. We're going to look at, at marriage and the church. We're going to look at the meaning of work and of rest. We're going to look at the deeper life in Christ. The deeper life that we in the Christian and Missionary Alliance have kind of trumped as one of our key doctrines. The deeper life is found in Genesis. Chapter 2. Plain as day. Well, it's not plain as day because a lot more people would recognize it, but it will be once we take a look at it. We're going to find the power and purpose of intercessory prayer. You're going to be amazed to see 
that the underpinnings of the meaning of prayer and what is effective and what is not comes from Genesis chapter 1. Right there in the beginning, there's teaching on the subject of prayer. We're going to find out about the nature of sin and salvation. We're going to discover eschatology. You remember from our study of the Minor Prophets that eschatology is the doctrine of last things. What in the world does last things have to do with the first things? Well, we're going to find that God is headed back to where He started. And the doctrine of last things is inexorably linked to the first things in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. We're going to discover truths about the Bible, bibliology, about apologetics, the defense of the faith, about angels, about demons, about Satan and the nature of evil. And we're going to discover things about cosmology, the beginnings of the universe and of the world and of the origin of life. But besides all of those things, perhaps these chapters of most acute interest to many people explain to us the problem and the nature of pain and of suffering. We find the meaning of the the problems and the whys and wherefores of the problems we have in life are truthfully explained in these three chapters, rightly understood. And we're going to discover that Genesis 1 to 3 helps us to have faith in a God who is good, even though we are living in a world that is not. And to have a hope in a future that is going to be a vast improvement over the present. All of this is hidden in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And finally, and this is just my finally, there's probably a lot of other reasons to study it, but this is my third point. We're going to find that these three chapters are filled with propositional truths. Now, let's talk about propositional truth for just a moment. You know, this is a subject, I'm going to define it, hang on, but this is a subject that has been questioned by the, I'm not using emerging church now in the technical sense of the emergent church, although it's been questioned by that group as well but by the ongoing development of the church, propositional truth or or propositional statements as a means of discovering truth is coming into serious question. It has to do with this whole issue of relativism and experience. In fact, one of the popular sayings of the emerging church movement is that doctrines divide, Christ unites. And I have to admit that on the surface of it, that makes me feel good. I kind of like the idea that Jesus brings us together. I believe that we need to bridge across denominational divides and, and find our unity in Jesus Christ. It has a nice ring to it. But it's a dangerous statement. Because... At, at the depth of its meaning, it is intended to undermine doctrine as objective, true truth, and to elevate our experience with Jesus as the common meeting point. And immediately one asks the question, well, which Jesus? What Jesus are you relating to? <laughs> Which one have you snuggled up to? Well, what do you mean? Well, what's he like? Describe your Jesus. And people will begin to uh, talk about what he's like. 
Now, if the description they give you differs from the one in the New Testament, they have snuggled up to the wrong Jesus. And all of a sudden, if you go back to the New Testament and say, well, I read this and this and this, and this describes who Jesus is, guess what you're doing? You're formulating a doctrine of Christ. All of a sudden, you're talking about Christology. The theological doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. And if your friend does not agree with what the New Testament teaches, he or she has the wrong Jesus. And there is no commonality. Doctrine does divide. It should not keep us from loving other people. It should not keep us from building friendships and bridges of relationship. But Jesus does say there comes a point when what fellowship does Christ have with the devil? There is a point at which that relationship will stop and there will be a division and you will not be able to cross that bridge until you are on the same page, as we say. And that page is the Jesus that is revealed in Scripture. So, propositional revelation or propositional truth is truth that comes back to absolutes and doctrinal reality. I'm getting ahead of myself, but let's define propositional truth. In logic, a proposition is a declarative sentence that is either true or false. Let me give you an example of a logical propositional statement. This chair is red. Okay, that is, a proposi- that is a valid proposition. It happens to be false, because this chair is not red. Would all of you agree that this chair is blue? How many of you find your own truth in this chair being red? <laughs> Could I see your hands? <laughs> How many of you would, would think that's cool, to have someone who says, this chair is red? You're fine, I'm okay, you're okay, what difference does it make? Do you see how things start to unravel? We're in trouble, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I was looking over here at Jan for a moment. I was thinking about looking at a, at a cardiac monitor. And, and, and I call that a PVC, and they're coupled, and they're happening more than six a minute. And the other person says, well, I don't see any problem with that. That's just an interesting squiggly. For me, my heart's kind of fascinating when they do that. Is there a problem with that? You better treat the one, huh? You better do something. Truth is true. We we recognize this. A propositional truth or a proposition is a declarative statement that is either true or false in logic. But in the Bible, a propositional statement, which is a part of God's revelation, is always true. It is always true. Now, when I first wrote this outline... I left out the phrase, a part of God's revelation, and I realized that I could get into trouble there because Paul, for example, quotes one of the Greek philosophers in the book of Acts and makes this propositional statement, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. That is not biblical revelation. That is Paul quoting somebody else. And so you have to be careful, make sure that you're looking at biblical revelation, but propositional truth in the Scripture are declarative statements that are made by God through inspiration that are true. Let me give you a definition of propositional revelation. It is true truth, and this is written in your outline so you don't have to write it down. It is true truth, I borrowed that from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, 30 years ago, said true truth is truth that God gives that is always true, irrevocably, unalterably, anywhere, at any time. It is true. Objectively, universally, it is true. Because God has said it. 
So propositional revelation is true truth revealed by God using words or statements. How else are we going to get truth? Are you going to have a feeling? Are you going to have a vibe? Some kind of intuition? In the middle of a trance? Where is truth going to come from? How do I know that your trance and my trance are the same trance? We communicate with language and words that can be put into sentences that can be understood in their most basic form. God has used words and statements which can be understood as objective and universal absolutes. Now, what do we mean by that? When the Bible makes propositional statements that are true, they are true everywhere for every human being in every culture, in every language, at all times, regardless. Jesus makes one in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, both the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father unless he comes through me. That is a propositional truth. It is a propositional statement. That is true for Buddhists. It is true for Hindus. It is true for Muslims. It is true for agnostics. It is true for atheists. God is there whether an atheist acknowledges Him or not. That statement is the truth according to Jesus Christ who made it. And it is an absolute which is universally true for all people in all times. There is no other way to the Father except through Him. These truths can be combined in logically rational ways to form teachings on a given topic in the Bible. These derived teachings based upon the propositional revelation are called doctrines, and they form the foundation for our faith. The whole body of these teachings combined form a biblical theology or a worldview against which all other ideas and experiences must be tested. I'm going to illustrate this, so don't, if you got lost, hang with me. I'll get you fixed here in a minute. But, but I want to illustrate it just by saying, or, or I want to explain something by saying, how do you know if your experience is valid? You had an experience. You had an epiphany. You, you had... You had a dream. You had a trance-like kind of uh, situation where you just saw amazing stuff. You have a feeling that something is good for you. How do you know whether or not it's true? Let's take an example. Maybe you have built friendship. And in that friendship, you have discovered that you, you have like ideas. You have similar thoughts and similar interests. And you decide that um, your interests are enough alike that they have marketable potential and you could probably have an effective business working together. Right? We can work together. We can make this widget and sell it for a profit, and we're going to have a lot of fun, and we're going to make a lot of money, and we're going to provide for ourselves and our families. But there's a problem. This person that you really like and enjoy and and have good fellowship with is not a Christian, and you are. And, And you pray about whether you should do this partnership in business. And and it looks right, and it feels right, and it seems right, and and you're both kind of pumped, and and you're real excited about it. Should you do that or not? I don't even have to pray about that. Does that sound sacrilegious? I don't even have to pray about that. 
Do you know why? Because the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And a business partnership is a yoke. And if you enter that yoke with an unbeliever, you are already in violation of the will of God. You don't have to pray about that. The Bible tells you the answer. It's very clear. And the Scripture asks the question after making that propositional statement. What fellowship has light with darkness or Christ with the devil? Now, you may not look at your, at your friend as the devil. But the truth of the matter is, he or she is being guided by an ideology, by a value system that is driven by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's very clear in Scripture. And if you yoke yourself with this person in a partnership, you're in trouble. I don't care how good it feels. I don't care how much you like it. I don't care how much you want it. You don't even have to spend any time praying about it. Why did you let it get that far? Because the Bible is plain on the subject. You say, wow, that's harsh. It's only harsh or loving if you believe the truth of God over your feelings. So, so you see what I'm getting at? All of our experiences. I had this, I had this epiphany. I had this vision. I, I had this idea that, that this is spiritual reality. I heard the other day, I think you were telling us, about this Assembly of God pastor. Does that ring a bell? Did you tell us about that? Anyway, I'll tell the story if he recognizes it, he can own it up. This Assembly of God pastor that all of a sudden resigned his pastorate and went to a, a universalist church because he had an epiphany, he had a vision that all religions were the same and, and all truth was God's truth and it didn't matter what you believed, everybody got to heaven. And, and he, he was confident. I mean, he had, a, he had a vision. Well, how do you know if that vision is right or wrong? It doesn't matter how wonderful it felt. It doesn't matter how powerful it was. It doesn't matter how tingly you got. The question is, what does the Bible say? Jeez, I just quoted it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Go down to the Baha'i Temple in North Chicago, look at those twelve doors, all religions leading to the same room. Is that true? It is not. You say, it's true for me. Well, then you're wrong. And I can tell you you're wrong on the basis of revealed truth. Now, you may not like the Bible, and then we have no point of conversation. We're done. We can't have any more discussion. But if you believe the Bible, that's what the Bible says. You see my point? All of our experience has to be tested against propositional truth as it is revealed in the Scripture. And as we take the statements of the Bible and begin to put them together, we can build a body of truth upon which we can rely. That's what we're going to do in Genesis. We're going to take the statements in Genesis and we're going to look at them as propositional revelation. And we will be able to construct from those statements, for example, what is God like? You're going to be amazed, I think, at what a complete picture we actually get from these three chapters. All the rest of the Bible supports and underscores it, but I think that the image is rather clear in the first three chapters of the Bible of the character and person and nature of God. Now, the Bible is not written like a list of truths. Point A, you know, God exists. Point B, 
He is one God in three persons, point C. It's not listed like that. It's told in the form of a story. It's in a narrative. When I use the word story, I don't mean fiction. But it's told in a narrative style in many cases. Some, some passages of the Bible are clearly didactic. What we mean by that is they're teaching passages. The Ten Commandments is a great example of a teaching passage. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a great example. In fact, all of Paul's letters are great examples of teaching passages. The book of Acts, on the other hand, is a narrative passage. It's historical. It tells the story of the growth of the early church. And when we read the narrative, we find that in encoded within the story that is grounded in history are truths that we can lift out of there, legitimately lift out and say, aha, we have this information here. We can see that as a propositional statement. And we can put them together to form a conclusion that is valid biblically. Let me give you an example. If you have your study guide, I want you to turn to the back side of it. There are some scripture passages there. I want you to turn the back side of it, and let's, uh, let's do a little bit of a trial and error here with stringing together some propositional statements to form a conclusion. The Bible says in Genesis 1-1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, is Genesis 1-1 a part of that body of writing we call Scripture? Is it? I mean, you agree. How do you know that? <laughs> God told us. Okay, where did God say Genesis is Scripture? Well, let me help you out a little bit. He sort of did, but not exactly in those terms. Okay. The Scriptures, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Jews, for 1,500 years, did not question the fact that that was a revelation from God that they called the Scriptures, along with the writings and the prophets. So, so the Jews called our 39 books, what we have in the Old Testament, they called the Scriptures. When Jesus was on earth... He affirmed those same scriptures. He even cited by name Abel, who was the son of Adam and Eve, and the last guy mentioned in the Jewish Bible, and and referred to that as the whole scriptures. And he said, not one jot or tittle will pass away until everything has been fulfilled. And so, we can look at the book of Genesis and say, According to everything we know in the Bible, the Old Testament are the Scriptures. Now, when Paul was writing to Timothy in his second letter, Timothy was a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish household. They did not have the New Testament yet because it had not been finished or compiled and collated. They only had the Old Testament that every Jew understood as a scripture. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, what was he referring to? He was referring to everything from Genesis to Malachi. So when when he said that to Timothy, and Timothy knew that. Now, Let's go back to Genesis 1.1 and let me ask you a question. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that a propositional statement? Yes, it is, isn't it? In fact, it's actually two, but we're not going to get into that in detail. He created the heavens and he created the earth. So there are actually two propositional statements there. But let's just take it for one. Let's keep it simple this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a propositional statement. Is it true? Well, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, what is the first propositional statement in this passage? Okay, 2 Timothy 2. In the beginning, God. All right, got that. 
and matter of fact, that's, that's next week's sermon. <laughs> All Scripture is inspired by God. Okay? This is the statement. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, let's add these two propositional statements together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All Scripture is inspired by God. Genesis 1.1 is Scripture. God breathed this out. This is the Word of God. The word inspiration. Did you catch that? Are you inspired this morning? I hope you are about 12 times a minute. That's important. It literally means God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. He breathed the words of Genesis 1-1 to Moses, who wrote them down. Now, I don't think he dictated everything, but I'm not going to get into that this morning. But he, he guarded it, protected it, inspired it, breathed it out so that Moses wrote it down. Now, could it be in error? Could it be wrong? Okay, God breathed it, but did he make a mistake? Well, let's look at Hebrews six eighteen to 20. Look at the first sentence. Same, same column on your study guide. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Propositional statement? It is. It's a declarative statement. And actually, it's several declarative statements. Unchangeable things. It is impossible for God to lie. I was talking about this in the 8 o'clock service. And uh, before I got to this point, I made the statement that not even God could change the truth. You know, and I, and I saw some eyebrows go, I mean, God's God. Can't He do anything He wants? Well, let me talk about the commandment from the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not lie. Okay? Why does it say that? Is it because God was kind of looking down and saying, let's see, how can I make a good society? A bunch of Jews out in the wilderness, how can I get them to, to live together and be happy and, and have a good life? Let's make up some rules. I think I'll make up a rule that they shouldn't lie to each other because that would be a good idea. They, they should always tell the truth. Is that how God did that? It's not, is it? The Ten Commandments are a revelation of His character. You are my people. I am not a liar. You should not lie. Because you are to be like I am. In fact, the Bible says, I'm going to string some more propositional statements together for you, okay? The Bible says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, and, and we know from other passages Jesus is God, the Son. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you spend a lot of money and go to seminary, you will learn a word that encompasses that. It's called immutability. God is immutable. He cannot change. I don't know about you, but I'm very glad for that. God will never get up on the wrong side of the bed and act differently toward me today than he has in the past. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. God cannot change who he is. Truth is not something he says. It's something he is. It arises from the nature of his person. God, let God be true, though every man be a liar. God is truth, and it is impossible for Him to lie. So now we're stringing three propositional statements together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 
it is impossible for God to lie. Is Genesis 1-1 the truth? It is, because God breathed it, and He cannot lie. And then we scratch our heads and say, but yeah, man, but the cosmos, the universe, I mean, that's big stuff. How can God do that? I mean, how, how did that happen by God? The, really, the question is, how could it happen any other way? But if we ask that question, we have another propositional statement, Luke one thirty seven. When the angel, by the way, is speaking to a virgin woman saying, you have a baby in you, and he is from the Holy Spirit, and he will be Jesus who will save his people from their sins, and, and Mary's scratching her head saying, how can that be? And the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Is creation a thing? Nothing is impossible with God. So here we have four propositional statements that can logically lead us to the conclusion that Genesis 1-1 is a declarative statement from a God who cannot lie, who has breathed this into the heart and mind of Moses in such a way that he has written for us the truth by a God who is capable of anything. Now, the final question is, when we have studied all of these chapters have to tell us, and actually that won't happen, but I'll make my best effort. When we have studied all of these chapters have to tell us, and we're 20 years older than we are today, down the road somewhere, and we've assimilated all of this knowledge, the question is, is it just a bunch of garbage? We have logically deduced the teaching. We have extrapolated the meaning. We have come to see all that these chapters can teach us. But in the final analysis, the question still remains, is it valid? And I want to go back to the statement that I made that God has woven truth into the fabric of history. God did not come to us and speak platitudes from the netherworld. Okay, he dealt with real people walking on the face of this earth in real space and real time. And he interacted with us in ways that left a trail of evidence. And when we get to the end of our study of all that it teaches us, I'm saving cosmology for the end. And we're going to spend several weeks looking at, I don't know, it could be several months, but we're going to spend some time looking at when it's all said and done, and, and we've got the people out there in the world saying to us, you guys are a bunch of fools. We now know that this all happened by evolution. And, and we know that God was not necessary to the equation. And, and we can prove that by science. So what's wrong with your heads? You guys are a bunch of nincompoops. I'm going to spend some time showing you that the evidence, the trail of history in the sciences, astronomy and geology and biology and chemistry and molecular biology, I'm going to show you that the evidence supports the story of Genesis more than it supports any other theory. That actually for someone with an open mind, the evidence stacks up in favor of the revelation. God has not left us looking like fools and buffoons on the corner of the street, scratching our heads saying, well, golly, I don't know, I just believe. Well, that's where you need to start, but God has given us evidence. And if our eyes are open to it, we can see it. Let me end with an illustration. I was reading a couple of things well, I've been reading a lot of stuff in preparation for this series. And I have uh, encountered uh, over the last couple of years a, uh, the, a thesis, a book, written by a molecular biologist by the name of Behe, B-E-H-E, or Behe, however you want to say it. 
Behe is a molecular biologist, happens to be a Roman Catholic, and he is a theist. By that I mean he believes in God. He does not necessarily embrace the, the literal teaching of Genesis 1 to 3. But he has written a book and since then continued to do research on uh, the, the reality that he has discovered, and other molecular biologists concur, called irreducible complexity. Now, what do I mean by that? What does he mean by that? Irreducible complexity states that there is a point at which an organism needs all of its parts in a specific arrangement, and they all have to be present for it to work. If they're missing a molecule of this or that, it's not that they're less effective, it's that they're dead. They don't work at all. He's conducted some of his research in the realm of vision. But one of his illustrations was a ciliated paramecium. That's that, you've all seen those in your biology class somewhere along the way. That's those little critters, you know, that look like they have a smile in the middle of their body. They're single cell. They have cilia all around them. They're waving all the time. And you can look at them under the microscope. They're a one-celled animal, which, he says, are so complex that the, the idea that the, the paramecium came from the bacteria, which, by the way, they tend to eat, so I'm not sure how that worked, but they came from the bacteria, that that's the evolutionary concept, that that's not possible. That that paramecium is so complex, even as a single-celled animal, that if you take one component out of it, it ceases to exist and to function. And he calls this irreducible complexity. And he says, this is Behe's statement, regardless of what biologists, cosmologists, geologists may say, molecular biologists know that Darwinian evolution is impossible. It could not have happened. Richard Dawkins is confronted with this information. He is the uh, world evangelist for materialistic evolution. Richard Dawkins looks at this and he says, Yes, the world is full of amazing complexity. It is true that we do not have any of the intermediary organisms from one species to another. We don't have any of those. But, we know that the answer is not God, because there is no God. But Dawkins himself says, that science can never address the subject of God because it is beyond the purview of investigation. And yet he says, there is no God, so God cannot be the answer. Now, whatever else he's doing, he is not speaking as a scientist. Because no one can say scientifically, there is no God. That is not a scientific statement. That is a prejudice. It is a philosophy. And it frankly drives his materialistic evolutionary theory. We need to learn to look at the evidence and to become informed about the truth. And I, and I will say this. As believers, we should never, ever be afraid of investigation. And we should never be afraid of science. Because true science, the real stuff, which, by the way, was more or less invented by Christians because they believed in propositional logic, true science will always lead us to the truth. 
And when we find the truth, we will find God because he is all there is to find in the end. He is true truth. And everything that is real in this universe and everything that is valid is completely in harmony with God who has spoken to us in his revelation so that what we see in the universe will be in complete concert with what we read in the Bible because the author of the universe and life and biology and astronomy and the cosmos is the author of the scriptures. And in both realms, he speaks truth. And there's no contest. And so as we move toward the end, I will lead us in an investigation. Good heavens, we covered up the clock. How did this get to be quarter to twelve? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that you would inspire us as we begin to study Genesis, to learn the truth which shall make us free. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.